I love weddings. And one of the things I love about weddings is when there's good music at the reception and dancing. I come from a family who very much values dancing. And so if we're at a wedding, we will probably at some point be on the dance floor with all kinds of people. There's always all kinds of people on the dance floor. You don't even have to know the couple. You just have to be happy. You don't even have to be good at dancing. In fact, there's the weddings I've been to, I don't know about you, but there always seems to be that one guy. And usually after the reception, if you ask someone, did you see that one guy? Everyone knows who you're talking about. Who gets on the floor without a care as to what anyone thinks, even though it has apparently been a while. And for some reason, it always seems to be somebody's uncle. But he will dance his socks off, not giving a care as to what anyone thinks, except maybe a family member or two on the sideline, probably his wife, shaking their head. Today we see David in a similar scenario. In our passage, we see David dancing, it seems, as if he doesn't care what anyone else is thinking. So much so that his wife, Michal, despises him in her heart. It sounds like an anecdote that could be told from any wedding reception. So why in the middle of the story of David's kingship does the author care to tell us about David embarrassing his wife by dancing? As we look at our passage today, we're going to see this chapter is actually teaching us some important things about worship. So what does David's dancing teach us about worship? What difference does McCall's opinion even make? We're going a little out of order this week. Last time we were in chapter 7 and found David settled in his palace thinking about building a temple for the Lord. And this chapter is just before that. And just after David has conquered Jerusalem. And so after he defeats the Jebusites... He looks to make Jerusalem his capital, building it up, and part of the process involves bringing the Ark of God to Jerusalem, <clears throat> making it the center of worship. And the Ark is described in Exodus, and it was a case containing the tablets of the law given to Moses, on top of which is called the atonement cover, laden with gold, with two golden cherubim on the side, flanking it overshadowing the cover with their wings. And it was in that space between the cherubim that God was present in a special way and would meet with Moses and give him his commands. And the ark was placed in the most holy place of the tabernacle, covered by a curtain. And outside of that tent, Israel would sacrifice their offerings on the altar. And so in bringing the ark to Jerusalem, David is attempting to make it both his political capital and the center of Israel's worship, particularly in this time before there was a temple. Before we dive into what the passage teaches us about worship, it's well worth uh, exploring the concept of worship. Worship often gets used in a way that confines it to Sunday morning for us Christians. Even more so, sometimes it confines it to the music within our corporate worship. You know, you might hear people say something like, 
the worship at church was really good today, or I really enjoyed the worship at church. And oftentimes, they're referring to either the music or their experience worshiping to that music. But really, the whole service is worship. And even more, worship goes well beyond our weekly corporate gatherings. Because it's more than any single action. Worship, as we use the word, can be thought of as ascribing worth to something. Particularly through reverence or devotion. And so when we worship God, we are ascribing to God, God's worth. And this could be done in countless ways. Jesus tells us the most important commandment in Scripture is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It involves our entire being. And so anything we do to show God our love, our reverence, our devotion with our being is worship. But if we are to ascribe to God his worth, it's well worth considering the object of our worship. Before our passage, the beginning of the chapter invites us to do so. At the beginning of this chapter, there's a similar scene to what we see starting at the beginning of our passage when we started reading. We see David bringing up the ark from the house of Abinadab with a large crowd, great celebration with music. But when David first brings up the cart, the ark, it's on a cart, carried by oxen, or being pulled by oxen. And one of the oxen pulling it stumbles. A man named Uzzah takes hold of it to steady it. And it says that God's anger burned against him for his irreverent act, and he is struck dead. It says in verse 9, David was afraid that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And so he changes his mind and takes it instead to the house of Obed-Edom, where it stays for three months. But something interesting happens during that time. David hears that the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom because of the ark. And that news convinces David to bring it to Jerusalem. And so the opening verses of this chapter show us something very important about the object of our worship, the Lord our God. They show us we worship a holy and gracious God. Interestingly, David and Israel at the beginning of the chapter, they're worshiping very similar to how they worship in verse 13 on. The difference is at the beginning of the chapter, the ark is on a cart. And this is not the way Israel was commanded to carry the ark. The ark was supposed to be carried by the Levites, who were the only ones who were supposed to handle it. So Uzzah should not have touched it. He should not have had to. Because the Levites were supposed to be carrying it on their shoulders by the poles permanently installed on it. And so if you notice in verse 13, it's being carried. And if you read the same episode in 1 Chronicles, it'll make it more explicit. David realized the mistake. And so they're worshiping at the beginning of the chapter, but they're not doing it on God's terms. And because of that, Uzzah encounters God's judgment. It's enough to make David afraid. And so he instead brings the ark to Obed-Edom. But Obed-Edom and his household are blessed. 
So in those opening verses of the chapter, we see someone judged for disregarding the holiness of God, but we also see God being abundantly gracious. And the first part is enough to make David afraid. So much so that he changes his mind about bringing it to Jerusalem. And instead gives it to Obed-Edom, who was a Levite and a worship musician. But what David didn't consider when he did that, at least doesn't seem that, that way, is the blessing that comes with God's presence. His fear actually keeps him away from the blessing of God's presence. Now, the Bible very much talks about the importance of the fear of the Lord. In fact, so much so that it's identified as the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts here, the fear of the Lord. The thing is, this is sometimes a hard concept for us to grasp because it's not the fear that results in moving away from God. Rather, it's a fear, a respect, a reverence that leads one to acknowledge who God is, acknowledge God's holiness as the And it's difficult to be hard on David for feeling the way he did. After all, someone just died because they weren't following God's commands and worship. And the truth is, no one can approach God. Unless their sins are atoned for, which is why sacrifices were a big part of Israel's worship. Which is why our Savior Jesus Christ provided the ultimate atonement for our sins, once and for all, by dying on the cross for us. And along with that, the hope of eternal life with his resurrection for all who would receive him. And all of that comes out of the graciousness of this holy God that we serve. The graciousness that we see in him blessing the house of Obed-Edom. The graciousness that allows us to even approach him in worship. And that an awesomely holy creator God would allow us into relationship with him to worship him freely. That's cause for celebration. That is why David is dancing. And as he decides to ark to Jerusalem, because worship is celebration. As we ascribe to God his worth, as we love him with our being, as we celebrate who he is, as we celebrate what he has done, and we give thanks for those things in anticipation of the great things that we will see him do. That's why David's celebrating, rejoicing, dancing even. Now, a careful reader of the Psalms might say, well, wait a minute. What about lament? What about mourning? Aren't a good chunk of the Psalms lament? The Bible's songbook. They are. Now, I don't want to get too philosophical about the concepts of lament and celebration, but let me suggest that they're not mutually exclusive. Let me suggest that we lament in worship because we celebrate who God is. And so when we lament, it's because things are not the way God would have them be. We are lamenting the things 
that God wants to change. We are lamenting the tragedies of this world. We are lamenting the heartbreak in this world. We lament our own sin because we know that these things are not God's heart. And so even as we lament, we do so because we celebrate who God is and we celebrate his heart for us and our world. And we anticipate when things will be the way he wants it. Which is why we pray for his kingdom to come. And in doing so, we celebrate his goodness. So David is dancing because of the goodness of God that we trust in. It says he's dancing with all his might. And judging by McCall's reaction, it was probably quite the spectacle. It appears he lost his shirt in the process. Let's see, when you go to a wedding, it's not just dancing. It's a holistic celebration. And the same goes for David. He's worshiping with his body in dance. He's worshiping with his as he sacrifices to the Lord. As he gives food to people. He worships with his words as he blesses the people. And he goes home and blesses his household. When we worship, we worship with all that we are. That's why it's not just singing on Sunday. Our worship on Sunday is more than music, to be sure. It's listening to God's word. It's what God has to say. It's giving our money to God's work. It's praying for God to have his way. It's ministering to each other in the coffee hour. And that's just Sunday. Sunday should be the launch pad for the rest of the week to continue worshiping with our lives in all that we are, all that we do, all that we say. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we treat people, how we contribute to God having his way in our context to show God what he means to us, to show him our love for him. So what's with Michal? Before we dig into her reaction, let me make a quick note on the last verse. Our takeaway is not a comment on infertility. I want you to know that. Okay, I have friends who have struggled through that, and it's a burden that only people who go through it know. That's not our takeaway. Our takeaway is not associating that with God's judgment. What the passage is doing in mentioning that Michal did not have children, it's primarily contrasting David with Saul, the house of Saul. And it's letting the reader know David's kingdom does not get perpetuated through Saul's house, even though he's married to Saul's daughter. That's why she's referred to as daughter of Saul. David contrasts with Saul because he's a man after God's heart, as is shown in his worship. So why does it matter that she rebuked David? David tells her, simply, because what he was doing was before the Lord. No one else. Michal forgot that worship is for God. This is a really easy thing to forget for anyone. And let me show you how easy it is. I read a book by a well-known worship leader named Matt Redman. 
who's probably written more than one song that we've sung in this church. And he describes finding a book written by a publisher that has some good resources, but he had a problem with one of the titles. And it was something along the lines of the 30 or the 50 most powerful songs in worship. Or the, the most powerful worship songs. It was a list of the most powerful worship songs. I don't think I noticed it at the time as I was reading, but he explained why he had a problem with that. He commented on it. He said, the most powerful worship songs. How generous of the Almighty to share his favorites with us. Because it's for him. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget because we as humans have preferences. And our tastes are not as eclectic as God's. Especially with things like music. And understandably so, because music involves a lot of our being. And music is a powerful tool for worship. But that's what it is. A tool for worship. And we have our favorites. I certainly have mine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unless your favorites get in the way of your worship or somebody else's. Those hymns. They're so wordy and long. Those praise songs. They're so repetitive. No one's immune to these attitudes. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I've never complained about music or songs, especially when I was a worship musician. one way to remedy that, to check those things in our heart, is one, to consider these are tools for worship. How might they be helping someone worship who doesn't worship like me? Those hymns, they sure find a way to pack a lot of rich theology into a song and set it to a beautiful melody. In fact, that's how people learn their theology for a long time when Bibles were a lot less prevalent. Those singing hymns. Those praise songs. They should find a way to make the truth of God accessible and catchy, even to people who haven't been in church. I can remember an atheist friend of mine overhearing her singing a praise song that she had heard. And I my ear caught it. I was like, are you singing that one song? She was like, yeah, it's a good song. <laughs> it was a good song. <laughs> Another way to remedy that is just simply remember who it's for. It's for God. David reminds Michal that worship is for God. And however we prefer to worship, whether to hymns or praise songs or in silence, there's an underrated vehicle for worship. We need to remember it's all for God. Our worship is for God. And it should involve our entire being. When you go to a wedding, the celebration is holistic. It's not just dancing. They feast. They talk. They enjoy each other's company. They give gifts to the couple. 
as an overflow of celebrating the occasion. We who follow Jesus have much to celebrate. That a holy God would make a way to himself for us, that's cause for celebration. That is cause for singing and dancing and giving. Because we celebrate who God, who our holy and gracious God is, because we celebrate what he has done and the hope that he has given us, we worship with our entire being. We worship with our entire lives, not just on Sunday, but every minute of the week and all that we are and all that we do. But as we do so, let's always remember that's all for Jesus. It's all for God. Let's continue worshiping him with our whole being.